The Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. I invite you now to listen for the word of God. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice on the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And the New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, I was standing outside a coffee shop in Birmingham when I received a call from an old friend from my Colorado days. A woman who I knew for many years had called me to tell me devastating news that her grandson had been found dead of an apparent overdose. We had been praying for him for many, many years holding on to the hope that he would be able to turn around his young life. But he was never quite able to stay clean for long. The woman was a devout Christian who had long lamented the fact that her grandson had disavowed the faith that she had tried so hard to instill in him. He had been baptized as a child at their church and been raised in that church 
From a young age, she could recall how restless he was in the pews, how he wouldn't pay attention in Sunday school. As a teenager, he stopped coming to church altogether and never looked back. Delirious with grief, the woman dropped her voice almost to a whisper and asked me, Brian, do you think my grandson is in heaven? I'm so scared he isn't. What a heartbreaking question. How do you suppose you might respond in that situation? To what theology specifically might you turn to offer a word of hope and a word of grace in such a fearful moment? Well, today we are considering the theology of baptism generally and specifically the baptism of Jesus Christ in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Baptism is the sacrament by which we die with Christ as we're lowered beneath the water and are raised to new life with Christ as we come up from the water. The Spirit's presence in the waters of baptism washes us and ensures that we might live a life of discipleship and faith. Some Protestant traditions do not allow baptism of a person until they have reached a certain age. It's sometimes called the age of accountability. And the idea is that one must be old enough to make a decision for oneself to lay claim to the promises offered in Jesus Christ. Infants may be blessed or dedicated in the church, but they cannot be baptized until later. With the Catholics, we Reformed Protestants kept the practice of baptizing infants, though for slightly different reasons. For Catholics, baptism achieves first and foremost the remission of original sin, which is the sort of general human sinfulness into which we are all born. Thanks a lot for that, Adam and Eve. Presbyterians also believe that baptism frees us from sin, but we baptize infants because we emphasize that God's saving grace comes to us before we even realize it. God's grace is present at baptism because God chooses to give us grace, not because we choose to receive it. Therefore, we baptize infants to acknowledge that it's not our accepting of God's grace that makes all the difference, but rather God's decision to give us grace in Christ that makes all the difference, a decision God made at the cross and indeed before the foundations of the world. Now, this does not mean, of course, that we don't think it's important to receive Christ and lay claim to our faith. Confirmation class serves this very purpose. It enables students who are old enough to make their own confession of faith. Confirmation is for us what adult baptism is for others, a choosing for oneself to proclaim Christian faith as one's own. That's a lot of theology, so let's summarize. While some Protestant traditions have infant dedications and adult baptisms, our tradition has infant baptisms and teenage confirmations. Both acknowledge 
the important role of God's grace coming to us as children and the importance of laying claim to God's grace when we are old enough to understand all that God has done for us. But we Presbyterians make God's claiming of us, baptism, the sacrament, and our claiming of God, confirmation, important, but not sacramentally so. The bottom line is this. Salvation is, from beginning to end, 100% God's doing and God's work. If God decides to save us, there is nothing we can do about it. It's going to happen because God doesn't fail. There's not an opt-in button we have to click. There's not even an opt-out button we could click if we wanted to. This is what Reformed theologians call irresistible grace. When we baptize an infant, it's not because that child is choosing to receive God's grace. It's because God's grace is choosing that child. Salvation has happened to that little one, and baptism embodies this truth. And it's perhaps the most beautiful thing we do in worship. Now, some might object to this theology claiming that free will has to be involved somewhere in the salvation recipe. God does all the work for us, sure, but we need to at least receive it, at least acknowledge it, at least sign off on it. Unless we repent, we are not forgiven, or so the thinking goes. God can woo us with grace, sure, but in the end, we must sign on the dotted line. From a Reformed perspective, it works the other way around. We repent not in order to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. If we repented in order to be forgiven, repentance would be a work of ours that results in salvation. Instead, we repent because we come to realize we are forgiven. Therefore, repentance is a, is a work done in response to our salvation, salvation that is already ours. Salvation is like waking up and realizing you're awake. When you're asleep, you can't decide whether to wake up or not. You just wake up when someone or something wakes you up, right? And when you wake up and you realize you're awake, you can't decide that you're actually asleep. You might act pretty sleepy and you might rather be asleep, but too bad, when you realize you're awake, you're awake. When we baptize, we talk about being dead in our sin and buried with Christ beneath the waters of baptism. Here's the thing about being dead. If you're dead, you cannot choose to come back to life. Certainly you can't make yourself alive again, but even if a miracle worker were to come to you who can raise you from the dead and ask you if you'd like to come back to life, you cannot say yes, you cannot acquiesce, you can't say, sure, I'd like to be made alive again. No matter how much that miracle worker might try to woo you, you can't even hear the question. You're dead. You're 100% dependent on that miracle worker to be raised. I think these circumstances are illustrated perfectly in the Disney movie Aladdin. 
I'd like to show you a clip from the original animated film, which takes me right back to when I was six years old. And it demonstrates well, I think, what happens in baptism. In this scene, Jafar and the palace guards who seize Aladdin and throw him into the sea represent sin and death. Aladdin represents us, and the genie represents Jesus. Take a look. I'm afraid you've worn out your welcome, Prince Abubu. Make sure he's never found. I can't help you unless you make a wish. You have to say, Genie, I want you to save my life. Got it? Okay. Come on, Aladdin! I'll take that as a yes. Don't you scare me like that. Genie, I... Uh, I... Thanks, Genie. Oh, Al. I'm getting kind of fond of you, kid. Not that I want to pick out curtains or anything. So in the movie clip, the Genie acknowledges that technically for him to grant a wish, Aladdin has to make a wish, right? That's how Genies work. Aladdin has to exercise his free will. But Aladdin is, for all intents and purposes, dead, unable to make a wish. So the genie acts alone and raises Aladdin out of the waters entirely by the genie's own initiative. That's what happens at baptism. And as Aladdin comes to his senses, he realizes he's alive. He realizes he's been rescued can't really choose not to accept the genie's saving work because he's been brought out of the sea. He's already been raised above the waters. The only thing that he can choose to do is to love the genie with overwhelming gratitude. That's where he has some kind of free will in his response to the genie's having saved him. Now, it takes Aladdin a minute to realize he's been raised from the depths. And sometimes it takes us a minute to realize it, too. Sometimes it takes us minutes or months or years to realize what God has done for us in Christ. But that doesn't change the reality of what God has done for us. What God has done for us in Christ is accomplished. 
Jesus says on the cross, not it has started, it has been initiated, but it is finished. It is God who saves us, and we are each somewhere along this journey of realizing it. Somewhere along the journey of waking up to God's grace. That's the good news. But it does leave us with certain questions that we cannot answer, of course. Questions like, why does it take some of us longer than others to realize that God has saved us and respond in faith? Some of us rise from the waters and right away regain our consciousness, a sudden conversion experience. Still others of us cough and sputter and struggle for much longer. And then there are those who come up out of the waters calm and at peace, but act like they were never under those waters in the first place. All of these questions point to the more fundamental question of why some people believe and others do not. And perhaps more perplexing still is, why are some people who are baptized and raised in the church, why do they drift away? Why do they not practice a life of discipleship? Why do some of us exhibit conviction in our faith, but for others of us, faith is so tough to grasp, so difficult to lay claim to, so hard to believe? For those who have come to believe in the salvific importance, the saving importance of our response to God's grace, there can be a lot of anxiety around these questions. For those who have a child or a spouse or a friend who is disinterested in Christian faith, a fear can creep in that although God may have taken them by the hand to lift them from the grave, they have the power to let go and slip back into the depths if they so choose. That was the fear expressed to me by the woman who called me about her deceased grandson. She feared that although God had taken him by the hand at his baptism, her grandson had let go and refused the promises made at his baptism. She was afraid that his free will had said no to God's grace such that he would remain beneath the waters and in the grave. You may have noticed about me by now that I'm a big fan of icons. I like icons because they are like a kind of visual prayer, a window into heaven, much as the stained glass windows are. They can capture theological truths in marvelously profound ways. The icon on the cover of your bulletins this morning is an icon called the harrowing of hell. It depicts Jesus rising from the grave, pulling up with him Adam and Eve, who represent the human race. I sent this icon to the woman who called me about her grandson because I think it captures visually the most important truth that our faith proclaims. If you look at it closely, you'll see that Jesus is lifting Adam and Eve from the grave, not by their hands, but by their wrists. You see, when we're taken by the hand, we can let go. But when we're taken by the wrist, we cannot let go. Whether we resist or not, we are claimed. We are gods. Whether we know it or not, we are spoken for. 
Friends, baptism proclaims the same truth this icon illustrates. It acknowledges the saving work of Christ on our behalf, work that is from start to finish God's work, work that is done for us before we become aware of it. God has us by the wrists. And sure, we can spend our whole ascent up to heaven looking back down at the grave instead of looking up toward our Lord. And that certainly is our loss. But in the end, we arrive with Christ. We are spoken for. Lots of people wonder why Jesus himself had to be baptized, since his salvation is that to which baptism points. Even John the Baptist wonders that in our text this morning. But I suppose Jesus had to be baptized for the same reason he had to take on flesh and dwell among us. For the same reason he had to descend into hell and lay dead among us. Because in Christ, God comes all the way to us, however far off we are, to take us by the wrist and say, you are mine, you are beloved, you are spoken for. Friends, that is our hope. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.